Good afternoon, universe. This is Cross Defense, and I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, joining you to recover the joy of the doctrine. That's what we are after in these drive homes this hour that we have. Uh, to, if you're driving home, that's pretty good. You're getting off early. But in this hour that we have together uh, this afternoon, we want to look at the Scripture, at the doctrine, at the Lord's teaching, and we want to recover the joy of it because Jesus intends for his victory over death and the grave, his Easter joy to permeate our entire life, our minds, our hearts, our consciences in life and in death until we stand before him on the last day in the confidence of his blood, the confidence of his promises, and enter uh, into life eternal. Thank you for joining me for this. Today we're going to talk about, we're going to have a conversation about the the question of of teaching or doctrine in the church and what form does it take if you go to seminary you have different kind of classes you have biblical classes you have church history classes you have practical classes and so forth we're going to talk about the different schools or different thoughts or ways of studying theology uh, if it's legitimate or if it's not and to help me through that Talking about some of those questions, I have with me uh, Reverend Micah Glenn, who's the executive director of the Lutheran Hope Center over there in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, Pastor Glenn, welcome to Cross Defense. Yeah, good afternoon. It's always a joy to be here, and of course, uh, happy Easter to all my brothers and sisters out there. Yeah, how'd you celebrate Easter yesterday? You know, it's... it's, it's as a pastor, especially as a young pastor, on Easter, that's the going to be a preaching, uh, but uh, since uh, I don't have my own parish as of now in Ferguson, and I'm called to another parish uh, where there are is another pastor, I get to enjoy it with my family. Um, so yeah, I got to sit and receive God's Word and uh, His gifts of uh, body and blood, and uh, not do anything else. You know, it's a you forget, I, I think sometimes as a pastor in the hustle of bustle of Sunday and that part of your job, you forget the gift of just being able to sit and receive, not necessarily be the one doing. Um, so it's very enjoyable. <laughs> That's good. And now you're going to have your chance this afternoon to preach uh, the Sermon of the Resurrection to come out, because really, it's, it is stunning to me that our chief uh, Bible passage, when it comes to the doctrine, we live in an age where people are not interested in doctrine. You say the word doctrine and people's eyes glaze over. They have like this Pavlov's dog's response, like the dog started drooling when it heard the bell. Now we have the response that you hear the word doctrine and people's eyes kind of glaze over and they start to drool because they're falling asleep. And we, we're, trying to, we're trying to fix that problem. And, and, it's, and the chief text that we have to fix the problem is the text in Matthew 28. So Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, he tells the disciples to go to Galilee, and and I've, I'm I'm trying to figure this out, um, Michael. Maybe you have some insight for uh, for me because Jesus, we know, was alive and appeared to his disciples for forty days. On the on the day of the resurrection, there's about five or six appearances. He appears to the women uh, on uh, walking in the around town. He appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden. He appears to Peter by himself. He appears to the ten as they're gathered in the upper room. He appears to the two on the road to Emmaus. He comes back a week later. They're still in Jerusalem, but all that first day, the angels were telling him, "Go to Galilee." So at some point between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, forty days later. 
at some point they go up to Galilee, and it seems like the only thing that happens up in Galilee is Jesus appears to them on the mountain and gives them some instructions, and he appears to them while they're fishing and feeds them breakfast. Then he sends them back to Jerusalem and starts the church there. But when, but one of those appearances is perhaps the most important. Jesus says, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, te teaching them to treasure, to keep, to hold on to, to do what I say and believe what I promise. Everything that I say, every single word, uh, and then and, and, and make disciples in this way. So that it's the resurrected Jesus that tells us that we ought to be concerned with the doctrine. We ought to be concerned with the teaching. So uh, maybe let me separate out all that stuff that I said and give you two questions. First, any thoughts on why Jesus sends the disciples to Galilee? And then second, any thoughts on the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and our love for the doctrine? Oh, your your first question, you know, you caught me off guard with that one. <laughs> I, you know, I, personally, I don't know if I, I put a lot of thought into it. Um, and maybe that's that's kind of where things began, right? Uh, going back to the beginning uh, of where things, ministry of Jesus, and where where their hometown was, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the and and so I, you know, like I said, I, I think it got me off guard with that one. Uh, so maybe no, no, that's it's. I mean, I'm asking because I, I know I don't know either. That's why I'm trying to figure. I mean, the angels. You know, the angels say to, to Mary, go to Galilee, and and they don't go to Galilee for like a week or something. And then when they're in Galilee, Jesus says, now go back to Jerusalem. It's just, I just don't know. I mean, maybe Jesus was clearing them out so that they wouldn't be arrested, or I've, I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure either. Well, let's, let's go to the second question then. This connection between the doctrine and the resurrection of Jesus uh, the, is uh, is really quite important. I mean, Jesus doesn't. He, he, it, it always is a surprise to me that when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, and we say, oh, man, all authority, that's quite something. I mean, we can really yeah. do... It's like if I said to you, Micah, I said, hey, I won the lottery. I've got $7 billion. We can do... Let's, you know, we're really going to make a difference here. Here's what we're going to do. And you would expect some huge sort of thing, you know? I mean, when Jesus says, I've got all authority, we're thinking in, into war and into poverty and into sickness or something like that. But when Jesus says, I've got all authority, and here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to baptize, and I want you to teach, and I want you to hold on to the doctrine. We're a little bit surprised. I mean, it seems like Jesus is, he's not, he's doing humble things with all authority. But that indicates to us how important the teaching is, right? How important the doctrine is, that there's nothing more important in the world than the gift of the Lord's name and the gift of the Lord's word. So, I mean, so, so to riff on that a little bit, this connection between the importance of the doctrine and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, and Jesus kind of doubles down at the ascension on that. Uh, you know, the, the apostles hear Jesus, they see Jesus, he's with them for 40 days, he's getting ready to ascend to the throne, uh, to rule before he returns, and they ask him about reestablishing Jerusalem, and he doesn't even answer that question aside from saying that's basically irrelevant. Instead of worrying about the temple in Jerusalem, worry about the gospel. Go preach the gospel. Go tell people the good news of my death and resurrection. And, and the, the reason why, at least for me, 
you know, and this this is a personal, I guess, uh, but something that happened at seminary where, you know, I, I was a chemist when I got to seminary, not a theologian. Uh, and so I'm, I'm still very much a baby theologian. Um, but understanding the teaching of Scripture is not a simple thing. Understanding the words that God has given through us in the Bible, while, while the words themselves might be very basic in meaning, uh, the words bound uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, become very deep. And so, you know, I always think it's Augustine who says something to the effect, and it's not a direct quote, that sure is shallow enough uh, for a baby to bathe, but deep enough to drown the world, or something to that extent. And so this this teaching, this understanding of what those words mean, I, I, you know, when you get them wrong, you get them wrong. And this is how all heresy and unorthodoxy is birthed, by seeing these words of God um, and trying to apply some other teaching outside of what they're actually saying. Uh, that and is, so that's what I, no, that... I, I know that quote, what, and it's, so, it's, really, it's really, really helpful, uh, because... Uh, because we tend to think of the Bible like a like a children's book, but that the idea that the Bible is so deep that in fact we can drown in it uh, is an important sort of thing. Because if we get the teaching wrong, th- this is the problem. If we get the teaching right, we have life. Peter says, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, your words are life and truth. The words that I speak to you, Jesus says, they're life." So that we have life by believing the promises of God, but if we get the promises wrong, the result is not life, it's death and condemnation. So we want to approach the scriptures with equal parts joy and fear, which I think, now, now think about this, this is what precisely what the disciples have when they approach Jesus. I mean, they approach him on the mountain and it says, they fell down and worshipped him, but some doubted. Or every time they see Jesus after he's raised, they they they're afraid of him i mean here's jesus who comes to bless and give life and they're afraid they have these equal parts of fear and joy and that's exactly how we approach the doctrine right well said, like you know, when people say you should fear god and they immediately reduce it to reverence like god shouldn't be scary to you and it's like you should revere god but you should revere him because he can destroy you if he wants to now he won't per se you know i mean now if you don't confess Jesus as Lord and, you know, call upon the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all those other things, yeah, you will be destroyed. I'm not going to take that away. But you see what I'm saying? Like, to re- it's always when we take God's Word, and again, this is where doctrine comes in. Uh, people will, will try to say doctrine is reducing God's Word to limit it to something it, it isn't. It's, no, it's, it, it, the Book of Concord and the regular day, the, the rules of faith, they're setting the Word of God free to stand alone as the truth without our input. And, and that's like going back to this, this idea of doctrine and teaching that Jesus is impressing upon his people, because that's all, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm surrounded by it, because in, over here in Ferguson, Lutheranism isn't a big thing a lot of people don't know about it. So they have this idea of, of grace in the sense that God's given it to them, and yet they still have to do something. It's no, that's what the gospel says to you, and that's what it does for you. It's accomplished all things. And that's why doctrine is so important, and this, this mode of, of being able to speak of, of, of God's Word, especially to other people, so they can actually understand that, that good news, this Easter joy that we just celebrated, and that we celebrate each and every day in our baptism. So huge. Yeah, yeah the, joy, the joy is not an emotion. I mean, it's not just—I I, I heard a report this last week that they have now a— 
uh, a machine that they can hook up to people's brains and they fire an electrode into the brain and it causes a feeling of euphoria. It's just an electronic impulse in the brain and it causes this. Uh, and, and, there, and there's this big kind of moral dilemma because they're trying to figure out how much euphoria you can give somebody. And the doctors in charge, they'll say, well, you can give enough to take away the sadness, but you can't add happiness. That's where it becomes immoral. But, you know, when you don't have a, a standard, what's the difference? But we, I think we, this is a, this great metaphor for our own time as people are trying to have happiness or joy or something, but not based on anything. While the Christian joy, the Christian happiness, our Christian life is based on something that is true. An event that happened, namely the cross and the resurrection, and the true report of that event in the preaching of the gospel, that it means the forgiveness of our sins. Now our joy is outside of ourselves. Pastor Glenn, I want, I want to circle back, because two things that you said got me thinking about uh, something. I want to circle back around. The, this first is this um, idea of the fear of God. And I was, I was thinking about this the other day, because the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods it means we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, that we should be more afraid of God than anything else because we know that God can wallop us and that there's an exclusivity to the fear of God. Now, in, in other words, if I'm, if I'm a kid and my, I know that I'm going to get in trouble from my dad, I don't care if my friends are mad at me. I don't care if my brother gets upset. I, if, if I have this overwhelming concern, if I have a particular fear, it takes away the fear of everything else. I'm going to do the right thing because uh, because of the way my dad thinks. Now, now, I think the fear of God is exclusive in that way. When God says, look, I'm the only one to be afraid of, what he's saying is there's a lot of things that you should not be afraid of. You shouldn't be afraid of death. You shouldn't be afraid of suffering. You shouldn't be afraid of mockery. You shouldn't be afraid of people making fun of you. You shouldn't be afraid of losing your job or being poor or or being rich or whatever. You shouldn't be afraid of these things. You should be afraid of me. So that the fear of God, it casts out all of these other fears. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because, the, because what we fear can become our idol. So then after we finally don't fear anything but God's judgment, then he comes along and says what Jesus says in the resurrection. Don't be afraid. So when God is the only one left for us to fear, when all the, when the fear of everything else is taken away, then God says, "I'm nothing to be afraid of." Look, here's my son, dead on the cross for you. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, for me, you, you hit it. I mean, my, you hit the nail on the head. So my, my motion today, this morning, took me to Deuteronomy seven and eight, where you know God is telling them how He's going to establish them in the Promised Land. Uh, he tells them to conquer all people. And he says, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. I chose you because you were the least, and I love you, and I'm going to keep my covenant that I gave to your fathers. Yeah, he, so fear me. So fear me. It, it may not look like I'm going to conquer them on your time, but rest assured, I will conquer them. And he did. <laughs> uh, and, and on the flip side of that, when they disobeyed, guess what? He conquered Israel as well. So uh, like you said, like once removed it, but, but it was because they stopped fearing God. And the one thing that they should fear, they started fearing other idols. I mean, this is the constant struggle of the Christian life. I mean, it's one of the most difficult things to do is to only fear God, to not fear death, to not fear being poor. Those things are, are extremely difficult. The, the difficult part of the Christian life isn't necessarily living morally, right? It's about comprehending and understanding that the only thing that we should fear 
in every sense of that word is the person who created everything. Yeah, it, it's a it is an it's kind of um it's a bit of a riddle, but it's it, w- when we do fear God, then we shouldn't be afraid of him. When we don't fear God, then we should fear him. <laughs> in other yeah. words, when when we don't believe in God, when we don't when we're not worried about our sin, when we think oh God doesn't matter, that's in fact when we should be most afraid of him. And when we do fear God, when we say, Lord, oh, Lord, we're afraid that you are seeing our sins and you're going to punish us for us, that's precisely when he comes and says, hey, hey, don't be afraid. So that, so that uh, um, it's, I suppose it's sort of the thing that we say with faith. When someone is worried that they've lost their faith, it's an indication that they haven't. It's, you, you know, it's indifference to the things of God that's actually the most dangerous thing of all. And the fear of God is the same way. Just a, a quick anecdote along the same line. So my wife and I, we have a foreign exchange student from Italy. She's a Roman Catholic. And so she, she went to church with us yesterday, but you know, my wife was really trying to get her to go to church on Good Friday because, of course, Good Friday, when God dies for us, it makes Easter all the much more sweeter. And, and so think about that. In all of the different world religions, you, you don't have any story like the story of Jesus, first and foremost, because none of them are true, of course, but where the creator of all, of all things dies for his creation to restore his creation. I mean, you're talking about a God who died and raised himself up. Like, you know, when we think about, you know, can God restore me from poverty? And I, I, I'm 33, I'll be 34 in, in August. And a, a year ago, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And everybody kept telling me I was too young to have rheumatoid arthritis, except I do. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. debilitating thing. And on certain days, you know, my physical ailment, I feel my young 33-year-old body failing me on a regular basis. Uh, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because Christ's resurrection, that there will be a day, maybe, well, definitely not in this life, but certainly in the next life, where I won't feel these pains anymore. Now, that's that's uh, something to fear, that God can do for me, when medicine and all of our reason and knowledge can't. This is Pastor Micah Glenn talking, and I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We are talking about doctrine and the joy of the doctrine this afternoon on Cross Defense. We've got to take a break. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the kingdom of God, this passage in Acts that you mentioned, uh, Pastor Glenn, and then we will be on to the various divisions in doctrine. At least I think we'll get there. Uh, stay tuned to the break. Talk to you soon. This is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. Hi, this is Bart Day, President and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. On September 1 of this year, I started in my new position at LCEF, completely humbled by the call to serve. LCEF has faithfully served the church for the last 39 years, and the work of providing funds and services for the sharing of the gospel of Christ, well, that work will extend long into the future. Together, our investors and borrowers look forward to a bold future of serving you and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. 
Visit us at lcef.org to learn more. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Every day, things happen that affect the lives of Lutherans worldwide. Whether it's mercy efforts to a disaster-stricken community, threats to religious liberty, or cultural trends. World Lutheran News Digest takes an in-depth look at one issue each week as I interview newsmakers and experts. All Sarah Gulseth presents a quick look at the week's news. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. was a short break and we're back at cross defense i'm pastor brian wolfmuller i think the i think i'm at b wolfmuller on the twitter if you're over there on that mess of a thing the twitter you can probably send me a message i'll probably see it three days from now but you can give it a shot or you can call into the studio we're at kfuo worldwide kfuo uh broadcasting live now with pastor micah glenn executive director of the lutheran hope center in ferguson missouri before we get too far into the woods pastor glenn tell us how people can find out about the lutheran hope center uh there you guys have a website i know why don't you give that up yeah of course our, our website is uh the lutheran hope center uh you can find us on Facebook. i want to just say at the lutheran hope center um we're also on instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm much of a social media guy, but if you do go to our website, it's the easiest thing. The Lutheran Hope Network. All of our social media tags on there. My emails on there. Uh, my office phone numbers on there. Of course, I need people to get a hold of me. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, it's an email. Uh, we do a as a missionary. I, I do a, a newsletter. Uh, I, I try to to keep people informed of what's going on over here, how we're progressing and moving forward. Um, you know, it's a it's a new mission, and so uh, talking about timing and things like that, they don't move quite the way we do. But uh, if if I could bring people into my daily life, so they could see the that it takes place over here, uh, and how we're advancing the Word of God through our supporters and through our partners and everybody else who is praying for us and uh, following us, uh, we we would see the power of the gospel. That's great. So it's the Lutheran, did I get this right, the LutheranHopeCenter.org? That's right. Uh, perfect. Now, I want one thing you mentioned that I want to pick up on just briefly before we move on to what we're supposed to be talking about, and that is you, you mentioned the, this connection between what's sometimes called the Great Commission, the Matthew 28, Jesus on the mountain in Galilee tells his disciples, I'm never going to leave you, baptize and teach. And then down uh, in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, when Jesus is taking him out to the top of the Mount of Olives before he ascends into heaven on the 40th day after the resurrection, and, he, and he's answering this question uh, that the disciples had. Even then, they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has in his own authority, but you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. Now, I, I, um, I, I've been wanting to run this idea by somebody for a long time, Pastor Glenn, so you're just, you happen to mention it, so you're going to get it run by you, and you can tell me what you think about this. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, and when Luther teaches us, what does that mean? That He says that the kingdom of God comes when the Holy Spirit comes so that God's word is preached and we live godly lives according to it. Now, I've wondered where 
Luther got that definition of the kingdom of God, the presence of the Spirit and the preaching of the Word. And I've recently begun to wonder if that, I, that teaching comes precisely from that passage in Acts chapter 1. Because the disciples ask about the kingdom, when will, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus doesn't talk about the timing of the kingdom, but he talks about what the kingdom will be. The kingdom will be when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you become my witnesses. So that the, the presence of the kingdom of God is nothing more but nothing less than the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. And that Luther is using that text to explain that petition in the Lord's Prayer. What do you, what do you think about that idea? Uh, I mean, personally, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, you know, on my vicarage... Um, we were talking about election one, well, Romans nine in particular. But anyway, oh, and uh, my supervisor says Jerusalem, and I say, well, what do you mean? He says there are people who think that we need to reconquer Jerusalem uh, for Christ to return. And he was even saying himself, he was trying to make a point for his congregation to hear uh, an understanding of this. And and first and foremost, to think that God needs us to conquer anything in order for Him to return is absolute ludicrous. God doesn't need anything from us. Um, but Jerusalem, you know, it, it becomes a consequence. You know, it, it serves a, a very specific purpose for a time and place, and that doesn't negate the importance of Jerusalem. You know, if you're a Christian, you have an opportunity to go see the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed or see the Jordan. All of these places will be edifying to your faith, but the kingdom of God, as Martin Luther says, as the Lord Jesus is where his, his people gather together as the body of Christ and call upon his name. And so the King of God um, is, like, I don't want to say located in the individual, but located in the body of Christ throughout the entire world. And so any particular place uh, for the kingdom of God to exist is, is kind of irrelevant. I was thinking about that too because uh, I've taken a couple of trips o over to the uh, to Jerusalem and Israel and Jordan. I, when I was 19, I spent um, I spent five weeks just by myself backpacking around Jerusalem mostly and and the area there. And uh, and we've taken trips over there to see the stuff, and it's amazing to see it. I mean, it it hit for me because it reminds me that all this stuff is real stuff. I mean, these places are real places. But but the but the stunning thing is, I mean, you go to the tomb, I mean, to either one of the tombs which are there, and they're they're empty. <laughs> Jesus is not. You do not have to go to Jerusalem to find Jesus to be blessed by Him to receive the gift of His Word. Uh, he He puts His blessing everywhere in the world through the preaching of the gospel, through the doctrine. That's what we're talking about. So that you don't have to, you know, get a plane ticket or go on pilgrimage. The Lord comes straight to you in the preaching. That's what that's what that text about is about in, in Romans 9 and in, in 10. The word is near to you in the, in the gospel that is preached. So that even though the church starts at Jerusalem, it expands into all the world, uh, even, you know, I mean, even right now, even the people listening to us, this is the kingdom of God expanding throughout all of the world. It's just a stunning thing to consider. All right, Pastor Glenn, we better focus, because we're supposed yeah. to study a couple of pages of Francis Pieper here. Uh, and we're going to let uh, Dr. Pieper come into this conversation, and he's uh, teaching us about the importance of doctrine, 
And there's a little question that I want to address just very briefly before the bigger question. And and he uh, he's wondering about how if our doctrine is drawn from the scripture, scripture alone, and the church does not have the authority to make stuff up, how can we use words, theological words that are not in the scripture? And the two examples that he gives are the word trinity, which is nowhere in the in the Bible, but we use all the time, and the word homoousios, the Greek word that means same being or same substance. Uh, that we say in the creed. How can the church, if the doctrine is from the scripture, how can the church use words that are not in the scripture? Uh, what's our answer to that question? Uh, you know, um, trying to go along Dr. here, you know, God has given his word and it stands alone. Um, but we're, we're particularly free as Christians to talk about God's word in language that we can understand. Uh, and, and for the same reason why uh, we don't read the 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 Old Testament in Hebrew to the congregation, and we don't read the Greek New Testament to the congregation to people because they don't understand that. And so, a particular task for Christian teachers is to take God's word and to, to, to teach these people in understandable words. And if the you, you, and so let's take Trinity for example. Uh, because, of course, there are a lot of anti-Trinitarian Christians out there, which is kind of an oxymoron. Of course, if you don't believe in you don't believe in God. Um, but God is one. He ex- expresses that multiple times throughout the Old Testament. There's only one God. There's only one true God, except Jesus to be God, and then they claim the Holy Spirit is God. So how do you reconcile that? Well, you come up with these words, Trinity and Homoousia, that explain the divine mystery. Uh, so that we can at least have a mode of, of understanding and talking about who God is. I, I love this Luther quote. It says, It's certainly true in matters concerning God. Nothing should be taught except the Scriptures. As Hillary says in De Trinite, that's uh, the Church Father, St. Hillary, in his work on the Trinity. But that means only that nothing should be taught which is different from the Scriptures. It does not mean, it can't be held, that one cannot use more words or other words than those that are held in the Scriptures. So when we say that we're limited to the Scriptures, we're saying our doctrine can't go beyond the Scriptures. But if we need different vocabulary to distinguish the scriptural doctrine from the doctrine of the people who are teaching falsely, then by all means use it. I mean, take up the do- take up the all the words that we need to teach what's in the scripture. Okay, okay, that's good. That's out of the way because it's the next thing is the thing that I want to talk about. So I'm if you're following along in uh, Dr. Peeper, I'm on page 100 where he talks about the various different theological disciplines, and I think this is a very interesting topic because when you go to seminary and the seminarians the seminaries are always working on their coursework and everything else. Uh, how they should divide up the classes and every and and how this should be divided, but the classical divisions uh, that we have are dogmatic theology, historical theology, exegetical theology, and practical theology. And Dr. Pieper is going to talk about, is it good to think about theology this way? What are the limitations? What are the dangers? And so forth. So, Pastor, um, so Pastor Glenn, tell us, when you were going through seminary, did, did you have classes divided up into those four different disciplines? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, now, in uh, at CSL, we changed dogmatic to systematic theology, but again, it's, it's the doctrinal, the teaching of what we say the Word of God is, but yeah, uh, historical, exegetical, practical theology, um, all of these things 
make a pastor. The idea is that your pastor uh, should at least be able to do them all fairly well, right? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, give us defini- Give us some simple definitions when we're talking about... So we've been talking about dogmatic theology, which is just yeah. how do we put all the teachings of the Bible together. What? How would you define... Well, let's do first historical theology. Right, yeah. Uh, so historical theology is looking back... Uh, well, what I mean, for all intended purpose, you know, if you're going to talk about historical theology, you can put Genesis 1 into history. So it's taking history that's uh, historical accounts of the Bible uh, and then moving forward through time and seeing how the Church has existed um, in different places throughout time and see how it's matured and how it's changed. Uh, well, changed to some extent, right? Uh, we have all these different things going on in the world at different periods of time and how the Church reacts to those. Uh, that'd be my best definition of historical theology. Um, exegetical theology is just a fancy word of interpreting the words of God. <laughs> That's, again, easy way of saying that. Uh, dogmatics, uh, again, we get that from doctrine, teaching, uh, teaching what God says to us, and wrap all of those things up into practical theology is how we take those things and apply it to the daily lives of, of the people around us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it's, I think we were on this show a couple of weeks ago, and one of the guests said that, uh, this was great, dogmatic theology is what does the Bible say, exegetical theology is what does the Bible say, historical theology <laughs> is how did the church understand what the Bible said? And practical th- theology is, how does what the Bible say matter to the sinners that are right in front of us? <laughs> but it's all a question of, what does the Bible say? I mean, that's, this, is, this yeah. is the question. Because, because when God says something, we ought to pay attention. It's, I mean, he, the reason why God has to tell us stuff is because we don't know it to start with. I mean, if we knew it, he wouldn't have to tell it to us. So whenever God is saying something, then he's saying it to us because we don't know already. So... So the sole question of the theologian is going to be this: What is God? What is God saying? And uh, and Pieper's going to make the point that n- none of the, the theological disciplines—the exegetical the- theologian, the practical theologian, or the historical theologian—none of them can escape the question: What does God say? Because if they stop asking that question, they stop being a theologian. In fact, the word theology yeah. means the words of God. And if we ever move away from the word of the words of God, then we cease to be theologians. I'm gonna here's a here's a great uh, thing. He says, uh, Christian church history shows, as Luther says, how the dear gospel fared in the world. <laughs> so that so that when we're studying church history, we're studying the gospel and how it was doing in the world. Any, any thoughts on that and how we ought to study how we ought to study church history theologically? Uh, yeah, I mean, so this is this. I mean, this is the very foundation of the Reformation, right? Luther's reading God's word, seeing what God says about particular situations, and then judging them against what the church is teaching. And it's oh, the church is teaching something that God didn't say. What what do you do? And this, and and so if you, if you're not constantly back and forth in between that that uh, that process. It's all too easy again. Like we started to fall away and to go down the wrong path, and and what you're teaching about what God says. I I had a uh, this is a memory of mine, which I I don't know. I, I'm trying to figure out why this matters so much. But I remember the first time 
that I was in a Lutheran church. It was historical and liturgical. And I had come out of evangelicalism, and I'd been used to the preaching of Calvary Chapel and that sort of thing. And um, and the pastor was preaching on the Magnificat, the, the prayer of Mary, uh, where she is visiting Elizabeth and, and talking about how blessed she is by the Lord to be bearing the Messiah in her own womb. And the pastor, uh, the pastor called that section of Scripture from Luke the Magnificat, its name, traditional name. And I couldn't, I was amazed by that. Because, and, and this is what I think it was, uh, Pastor Glenn, that I was, it, it occurred to me that we are not the first people in the history of the world to be reading this text. <laughs> that other people had read it, had thought about it, had prayed it, had, had sung it, uh, had, had spent time thinking about what it meant. They had even given it a name, the Magnificat. And historical theology is, has this great, uh, humbling and comforting effect of reminding us that we are not the first people to walk on this path. That our fathers and grandfathers in the faith uh, have also trodden down, uh, trodden these paths. They've they've shaken down the leaves of these passages. They've studied these things and they've sung them. I've, I want to I want to get your thoughts on that, but I see that the clock is against us here. So we're going to go to a break here on Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I'm with Pastor Micah Glenn. Executive Director of the Lutheran Hope Center over there in Ferguson, and we're talking about the different disciplines in doctrinal theology, talking about how theology is our great joy, talking about how the resurrection of Jesus and doctrine matters. We're talking about how the church has studied the Bible. We're talking about it all here on Cross Defense. Thanks for being with us. Send us your questions. You can probably tweet at KFUO Radio. Uh, and Stephanie, who's working the board, uh, is picking up those tweets. She's got a question for us when we come back as well. So send us your questions and your thoughts, and we'll be with you in just a few minutes. Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Every day, things happen that affect the lives of Lutherans worldwide. Whether it's mercy efforts to a disaster-stricken community, threats to religious liberty, or cultural trends, World Lutheran News Digest takes an in-depth look at one issue each week as I interview newsmakers and experts. All Sarah Gulseth presents a quick look at the week's news. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. National Poetry Month is one of the largest literary celebrations in the world. And did you know the Bible contains examples of Hebrew poetry in the books of Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and in the Psalms. And that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, one of the few American writers honored in the Poet's Corner of Westminster Abbey, wrote one of his most famous poems as a reflection on the Bible. Longfellow's Psalm of Life from Genesis 3 became what the Poetry Foundation calls a mainstay of national culture. 
And it was a poem he wrote that became the basis for the Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. His words in its familiar last stanza, a reference to Luke 2.14, with peace on earth, good will to men. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Hey, hey, welcome back. Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And I am joined by Pastor Micah Glenn, who is the Executive Director of the Lutheran Hope Center, Ferguson, Missouri. The LutheranHopeCenter.org. Is that right, Pastor Glenn? You got it right. Hey, the LutheranHopeCenter.org. My website is Wolfmuller.co, like Colorado. I couldn't afford the M to make it .com. That's how that ended up. Too many letters in Wolfmuller. But we got some Easter stuff posted up on the blog there, uh, the chronology of Easter and the events that come after Easter. You can find that there at wolfmuller.co. We were talking about historical theology, and I told you this story. It's probably not that impressive of a story. But the idea of hearing somebody preach and call the text of Mary the Magnificat and realizing that we are not the first people to read the Bible, and that's what historical theology brings us. Any any thoughts on that? Does that make sense that that was such a, um, a moment in my own thing, or do you think I'm just a weirdo? Oh, not at all. I feel like every generation looks back at the generations before it with errors. Um I mean, something non-biblical, kind of. Uh, because we're talking about creation here, is when we look at the pyramids and can't understand how, without our modern tech, we can't build the pyramids with our modern technology. So how did the people do it back then? Aliens, you know. And so it, we we look back at people and think they had to have been dumber than us because we have all this information. Oh um, yes. And then we read something like Francis Pieper this morning when I was going through this this thing he humbled on multiple occasions <laughs> uh, in, in my young life you know every like for me it was second year of seminary when you you've been through that first year you're the longest reigning person on campus per se because everybody's either gone to courage or returning from vicarage and so you know or you know well you know just enough to be stupid uh, and so it's, it's it's one of those things you know Looking back at Martin Luther and seeing what's said about these things is of the utmost importance, because if you think about it, the people, Paul, uh, they were the ones that were closer to Jesus, so maybe they have a better understanding of all this than we do. <laughs> yeah, no, that's one of the marks of our modern times is that we are just we are simply arrogant. We have inherited all of this knowledge. And we mistake it for a growth of wisdom, and we tend to look back on the ancients and despise, and despise them. And that historical theology does the uh, that it also humbles us. It reminds us that that we are standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, theological mm. giants, giants of the faith, and giants of wisdom. Uh, and we ought to uh, we ought to appreciate them. Uh, we got a question from a listener, and the question is this, uh, Pastor Glenn. Um, shouldn't we trust in the Holy Spirit to remind us of what is to come? I don't know exactly what part of our conversation that is referring to. If you can remember back to see if to fit that in the context, but if not, what any thoughts on that? Should we rely on the Holy Spirit to remind us of what is to come? Um, yeah, I'm trying to recollect. I mean, uh, we've talked about. 
the kingdom of God. Uh, I mean, we we know what's to come through the Holy Spirit's revelation of Scripture and, and God telling us that Jesus will come again and that there's something to come after this life. If that's what he means, I, I would say yes, um, absolutely. And maybe even to some extent in life, uh, but but then again, you have to then tailor what's to come for us in this life, um, and and that's a whole slew. Of, you know, it's a rabbit hole. Uh, yeah. I I, I want to answer the question because I think it's a good one, but there's just not enough context for me to say anything specific other than, of course, you should trust the Holy Spirit and what God says is to come. If that. Yeah, I th- no, I, I'm right with you on there. I think there's something, one of the dangers that we face in our modern theological context is the separation between the, the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of the Holy Scriptures. And so we yeah. assume that the, the, the Holy Spirit speaks apart from God's Word, and that is not the, the case. When Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends out, he says, I send the Holy Spirit, and I'm sending you to teach and preach. And so we, we hear the Holy Spirit, um, not in the, in the inner voice, not in the heart, we hear the Holy Spirit in the external word. So uh, I think sometimes when people say, don't we trust the Holy Spirit, They're, they want to set the Holy Spirit against the Scriptures or set the Holy Spirit above the Scriptures or set the Scriptures below the Holy Spirit. No, we have to say that these two always are coming together. And the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Scripture, does tell us what's to come. The resurrection of the body yeah. and the life everlasting, the new heavens and the new earth, and we rejoice in those things. I remember in the old days, the old evangelical days, where we were always... I, in fact, when I, I told you I was, I was backpacking around Jerusalem for a few weeks, and I went when I went to Jerusalem, I was not a Lutheran. I was an evangelical, a dispensationalist. I was looking for the rapture, etc. And one of the reasons I went to Jerusalem was to see biblical prophecy unfold before my eyes, because I thought, you know, all these things, the rebuilding of the temple and the establishment of the one world government and all that sort of stuff was going to just be happening. But when we read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit teaches us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 1. And so we're not looking for any fulfillment of any prophecy except that the Lord Jesus would return on the last day, call all the dead, give the resurrection to all people, give eternal life to all believers in Jesus. That's the only promise still to be fulfilled. Uh, Pastor Glenn, I'm going to move us on, because we're going to run out of time quick. It's just going to be gone before we know it, uh, to the to the next two topics that Dr. Pieper brings up, and that is exegetical theology and practical theology. Uh, talk a little bit about exegetical theology, what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. Uh, so this is, again, uh, this, this is my take. So exegetical theology, again, and it's, it's a building process. And it's, I mean, for me as a chemist, and the, the building, it, it, it's the building blocks of, of understanding God. So it's, it's the practice and the discipline of looking at words and letting words say exactly what they say uh, around the other words. That it, that it's surrounded by. So Jesus just by itself is just a name, but Jesus in the context of the Bible is something very different. Um, and and then, uh, again, it, what it's not is, is a freedom to interpret words however you want to, because uh, I, I always call this Bible picking. 
And so exegesis gone wrong is saying that God is love. Um, and we talked about this the last time we were on the show together, and, and reducing God to is simply our modern construct of what love is and what it looks like. There, there's a Latin phrase that Dr. Pieper uses, scriptura, scripturum interpretur. That means scripture interprets scripture. And uh, and this is an important sort of thing. The, the, uh, I remember learning that the three rules of hermeneutics, that is how we read and interpret the Bible, the three rules of hermeneutics are context, context, context. And I thought at first that that was a joke, but I realized, and I think it is a little tongue-in-cheek, but that there, there's something there. In fact, we consider, when we are reading the verses of the Bible, and this is just very practical for the people listening to us and, uh, and saying, hey, g- give me something practical. Here it is, that when we're reading a particular word in the Scripture or a particular verse in the Scripture, we, we are looking at context, context, context. What is the context of the paragraph? What is the context of the book? And what is the context of the Bible? So that, yeah. so that I understand the whole flow of the biblical text, that I understand the purpose of that particular writing, and that I understand what's going on in that particular text. And I'm looking at each piece in, in, the, uh, in the context of the entire Bible, the entire book, and that particular section. So that the Scripture is always interpreting the Scripture, and that is giving us the true meaning. I th- thoughts on that and how that looks kind of practically. Uh, I mean, so, so to begin practically, and this is, uh, again, something that I do, there, we have many men in our church that are very gifted exegetes, and they write commentaries. And, and I'll do a little for CPA, the Blue Commentary series, where these men have given us wisdom, um, and, and it's just a wonderful series. Uh, but but it, it's, it's just this idea, again, looking back through history, how the, the gospel has been sur- survived through history and how the church has reacted to it through history. Again, it's such a complicated thing, and I don't want to overcomplicate it. But like you said, context, 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 that's something that has to be, uh, again, going back to this word doctrine and teaching, it's, it's something that has to be taught and learned over the course of, I mean, I would have to say our entire lives. And because even then, there's still more to be revealed. This this thing that we call the Bible, this book, is so deep. Um, and again, at the very root of it is Jesus. And so if you find yourself straying away from Jesus, you're, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> uh, Dr. Luther says, we can never get tired of learning what the Holy Spirit never gets tired of teaching. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit is always going to be teaching us God's Word. And so we can't get tired of learning. There's just more there for us. And every time we go back to the Word, we remember that. Ah, oh, there's more here for us than I thought. Every time, you know, every book is new every time we read it, no matter how familiar. It's gr- really great. Okay, practical theology. That's what's the last thing here. So we talked about historical, exegetical, which is studying the Bible. Practical theology, Dr. Pieper says, is the ability to apply the pure Christian doctrine learned from Holy Scripture in the work of public ministry, in preaching, in ministering to souls, in catechetical instruction of young and old, etc. And then this, I think, is great. Insofar as the minister yields to non-biblical considerations in the performance of his ministerial functions, insofar uh, his practical theology is no longer theological. (laughs) So the way to get practical theology to not be practical theology, but just practice, is by taking out the Scripture, going beyond the Scripture, using stuff that is not Scripture. So how does the study of the Bible relate to practical theology? 
You know, I I have to. So here in in Ferguson, and there's a Lutheran Hope Center. You know, we're we're trying to take mercy and apply it to the community. Um, and uh, one of the ways we're we're trying to accomplish that, uh, our literacy rates over here amongst children and adults is horrifying. And in fact, I believe it's one of the leading con- contributions to poverty and crime and everything else like that. Uh, and so I've gone to some schools. Uh, and, and there are schools that will let churches go in there and do their thing. But, you know, since I'm a new organization, they don't know me, they don't trust me, and rightfully so. Uh, they don't want me to come in and start preaching the gospel right away. And in turn, I don't want to go and do the reading program in their school because I'm not willing for the gospel. Because without it, just simply teaching kids to read without pointing to the thing that's most important for them to read uh, rendered me useless to them. And so anytime we, we think we're feeding the homeless just to feed the homeless, no, you're, bringing to, you're, you're bringing them to you uh, through a physical means that God has provided for you in order for you to tell them the good news. Uh, that spoken word, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word. That's what we, we, never have, we can never forget is we, wherever we go, no matter our situation, we have to preach the good news of the gospel to those around us. And that's real practical theology, in my opinion, no matter what social ministry you're doing in any particular day. Now, after Peeper says all this stuff, so that's great. So practical stuff and exegetical stuff and, dog, and historical stuff, he comes back to the to the glory of dogma, and he's a dogmatician, so you kind of don't expect it. But then he says this, and he says, every if, if you're an exegete, if you're a practical theologian, if you're a historical theologian, you got to know the dogma. And then he makes this but the, uh, very exclusive statement, which I want to spend the rest of the time meditating on in the few minutes that we have left. Peeper says, only dogmatics is edifying. <laughs> What a thing! What a thing to say. <laughs> Only dogmatics is edifying. Do you? Do you? Can you unfold what he's actually what he's asserting there, and then and then see? I want to see if you want to argue against it or in support of it. I, uh, get your thoughts. Yeah, so I'm not going to lie. It's some of my favorite brand of theology is exegesis. Again, I told you because I'm a chemist and I like the building blocks of it all. Um, but this is this is what I would say uh, to this statement. Um, no, I, I would definitely push back probably across this entire section of of Peeper, if I could speak to him in person, but since I can't. Um, But anyway, is that the dogma, the teaching of of what the Word of God says to you, um, the fact that a pastor saying, your words are forgiven in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, you know, that is the Word of God coming through your pastor to you for your forgiveness. That alone is edifying. And even when you're Bible to yourself and you're thinking of teaching the dogma of it, that will edifying you, not necessarily the words themselves. Now, again, I'm starting to think, get into some dangerous ground here, what I'm saying, but that's that's what I would assume, again, reading Peeper and trying to understand who he is by what I have here in his text. I, 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 think, that, I think this is great because... Uh, I think what Peeper means by when he's talking about dogmatic theology here is he's saying it's got to get to the point of assertions. You can have the theology, you can have the history, you can have the practical stuff, you can have the exegetical stuff and all the background, but you've got to get to the assertions. You've got to get to the truth claims. You've got to get to the... 
you've got to get to the uh, to the confession of the mystery that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Son is in our flesh, that He's in our place on the cross, that He's risen from the grave, and that He's ascended to the to the Father's throne. You've got to get to the point of saying your sins are forgiven, and I, I think that is what Peeper means, and I think that's what's behind it here. And I think if that's what he's talking about, that's exactly true. Because until... Well, I think it's why... Well, sorry to cut you off, but I also think it's the reason why we're Lutherans and we're not Roman Catholics or Baptists, because of the dogma. That's what, that's what I would assume. I mean, that's what we all claim to, right? That we, this confessional together, doctrinal statements, that this is what the Bible says for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's it. That's the point I'm after, is that it's the for you that gives us life and hope and peace and confidence and joy. And all of the Bible, all of the history, all of the practical stuff comes down to that, that Christ is crucified and Christ is raised for you. Dear friends, that is the joy of the dogma. Thank you, Pastor Glenn. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, joining you every Monday for Cross Defense, trying to recover, well, recovering the great joy of the Lord's doctrine. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.